Welcome to the NIHR Dementia Researcher podcast, brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk, in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society, supporting early career dementia researchers across the world. Hello, and thank you for listening to the Dementia Researcher podcast. All this week, we've been sharing the narrated blogs from our fantastic contributors from over 2020. Today, I've got five more blogs for you. First up, we have Dr. Cara Croft and Dr. Claire Durant. We had a week earlier this year where we asked each of the Race Against Dementia fellows to share their thoughts on how the first year of their fellowship had progressed. Race Against Dementia is a fantastic programme headed up by Sir Jackie Stewart, which funds researchers for up to five years within three years of completing their PhDs to study. It's a fantastic fellowship that comes with a whole package of support and tries to transfer some of the F1 winning attitude into dementia science. I hope you enjoy listening to Dr. Cara Croft first and then Dr. Claire Durand. Being part of Sir Jackie's vision of race against dementia and bringing fresh talents into dementia research became more real when in the summer of 2019, I interviewed for the fellowship position after submitting my application in January of the same year. Since then, the initial three ARUK Race Against Dementia Fellows, Dr Christy Hung, Dr Claire Durant and I assembled as the initial team of Fellows, shortly joined by Dr Ellen Dix as the Race Against Dementia Mayo Fellow. The team continues to expand, with two more Race Against Dementia Australia Fellows joining us in January, and you could be a part of the team next year when you submit your ARUK Race Against Dementia application by the 20th of January 2021. My research is focused primarily on the pathologies of Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease and how this relates to brain cell dysfunction and death. I'm also intrigued by how known genetic risk factors for these diseases may interact with this pathology and affect brain cell function. I use several approaches, including adeno-associated viruses, gene editing, organotypic brain slice cultures, in vivo models and imaging to learn more about how these risk genes and the biological pathways that they are involved in could be tweaked to lead to new therapeutics. Through the flexibility of the fellowship, I was able to choose who I wanted to be a part of my team and where I wanted to conduct my research through the offering of succumbent opportunities. My work is jointly supervised by Professor Bart Destruper of the UCL UK Dementia Research Institute and Professor Todd Gordy of the McKnight Brain Institute at the University of Florida. I've also had the opportunity to work with other academics at these universities and mentors from the biotech industry in this project. The fellowship has also enabled me to expand my own small team to have research assistants budgeted for and involved in my work in preparation for their own future scientific and medical careers. The Race Against Dementia Fellowship also provides a whole host of alternative training opportunities, including visits to Red Bull Racing to gain insights into workings of a Formula One team. Other activities have included workshops on understanding Formula One performance, personal and team leadership, as well as comprehensive communications training. Like Formula One drivers, we all receive our own personal coach through hints of performance, advising us on parts of our daily lives, such as sleep and well-being, 
which can ultimately affect our core values and performance if not given the attention they deserve. A Race Against Dementia Fellowship provides a flexible funding package for bold new ideas in dementia research, supported by alternative training to advance and develop your research and career. I am excited to see the new areas of research this funding call will support and to welcome in the new members of the Race Against Dementia team. In a world before COVID, on the hottest day of the year, Dr Christy Hung, Dr Cara Croft and I sat waiting in an immaculate study. A butterfly gently fluttered against the window, the sound of its tiny wings hitting the glass just audible in the nervous silence. Today, after months of grant writing, interviews and anxious waits, we would finally get the news that would be the first cohort of Race Against Dementia Fellows. Let's get that window open for that poor wee beastie. Sir Jackie Stewart strides into the room and instantly clocks the trapped butterfly, his famous attention to detail becoming immediately apparent. An icon of Formula One and a Scottish national treasure, Sir Jackie is now embarking on his latest challenge, defeating dementia. He warmly greets us all and immediately sets out his vision. Sir Jackie's established Race Against Dementia with a clear ethos, to change the way we work in dementia research. Taking inspiration from his experience in Formula One, Race Against Dementia seeks to accelerate research progress through global interdisciplinary collaborations and out-of-the-box thinking. By offering early career researchers five years funding instead of three, they give their fellows space to really dig into scientific questions without the ticking clock of the next grant deadline. I'm now one year into this fantastic scheme and I can honestly say it's been life-changing. Having completed my PhD and first postdoc at the University of Cambridge, I moved to the University of Edinburgh to work alongside Professor Tara Spires-Jones. I've developed key collaborations with academics in Germany and the US, as well as with pharmaceutical companies and drug discovery institutes. I've also expanded my scientific skill set, working with human tissue for the first time through collaborations with local clinicians. Using both mouse and human organotypic brain slice cultures, I'm seeking to explore why we lose synapses in Alzheimer's disease and frontal temporal dementia. I'm particularly interested in the normal role of tau protein and how this interacts with microglia. Whilst tau can become toxic in Alzheimer's disease, the processes that cause it to aggregate inside nerve cells may also disrupt key physiological functions of this protein. I hope to establish which aspects of synapse damage are caused by toxic gain of function versus loss of function of tau with the aim of identifying safe methods for therapeutically targeting tau. As well as being able to focus on some really exciting science, Race Against Dementia have offered a plethora of personal development opportunities, including leadership training, public speaking coaching, and visits to Formula One facilities. We've also presented our work to their fantastic board of trustees, and I've had the pleasure of working with teams from Dyson through my links with the James Dyson Foundation, who sponsor my particular fellowship. This fellowship is unique and a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. I really encourage any early career dementia researchers to look at Race Against Dementia to support the next stage of their career. I'm very much looking forward to seeing our team of fellows grow further and the work that we can achieve as a group. Doesn't that just sound like the most fantastic programme? 
I love the idea of trying to bring coaching and support alongside the funding. The Race Against Dementia Fellowships are actually open for applications right now with Alzheimer's Research UK. You'll find information on Alzheimer's Research UK's website. However, the deadline is very soon. Our next blog comes from Bethany McLaughlin. Bethany is a first-year PhD student and has decided to share her story with us through the Dementia Researcher website. I hope you enjoy her introduction. Hi, my name's Beth, and this will be the first of my monthly blog series here on Dementia Researcher. In my posts, I'll be discussing some of the highs and lows of being a first-year PhD student and what I'm getting up to during my studies. I hope these blogs can give students that are thinking about doing a PhD more of an idea of what being a PhD student is like. In this first post, I'll be introducing myself and my research. I studied experimental psychology at Bristol University where I held the very prestigious position of President of the Pokemon Society. While at Bristol University, I was inspired to become a dementia researcher after taking a module on ageing psychology. I was able to get some research experience by volunteering as a research assistant on various projects and through my undergraduate research project about multimodal priming in older adults. I definitely recommend getting as much practical research experience as possible to any students out there hoping to do a PhD, as it made me feel much more confident and capable proposing and planning my present work. After I graduated, I moved to Tokyo, where I lived for a year teaching English, brushing up on my Japanese, and buying a lot of Pokemon merchandise. While I was in Japan, I found out about a master's course at UCL that was specifically about dementia, which was perfect for me. I applied and got into UCL, and so I moved to London. This master's degree definitely confirmed that I wanted to dedicate my career to dementia research. Being taught by dementia specialists from a range of fields was massively inspirational, and being surrounded by other students that were all as passionate as I was about dementia research was greatly motivating. You can find a link to a helpful list of dementia-related master's degrees in this blog post. For my master's dissertation, I completed a research project about multimodal processing in Alzheimer's disease and frontotemporal dementia. Working with participants with dementia and their carers was such a rewarding experience, and it was during this time that I became particularly interested in carers of people with dementia, as many of the carers I spoke to told me about how they felt that they hadn't received enough support and felt very isolated. After speaking to carers about their experiences with support groups, it became clear to me that support groups were massively valuable, but quite difficult to access for many carers. Carers might not have any appropriate groups close by, especially if they're caring for someone with a rare type of dementia. They might not have access to transport or have issues with mobility, or the carer might not have access to respite care whilst they attend a support group. This made me wonder whether online support groups could be an effective way of tackling these issues, and I decided to base my PhD research project around comparing the effectiveness and accessibility of online and face-to-face -face support groups. This idea fit in well with the PhD position I applied for at Warwick University, which centres around the use of an online support platform for carers in Warwickshire called Care Companion. Care Companion gathers advice and information for carers that's all vetted by a panel of experts to ensure there's no misinformation and that people who are not confident with using the internet can trust the information they find there. Because of the pandemic, there's more reason than ever to investigate online support for carers to prevent isolation. As many people that wouldn't usually use online services are getting online, it's important to find ways to support this transition from physical to digital and ensure that people are able to find good support online. Currently, I'm developing a research protocol for mixed method study, investigating the experience of dementia carers using online support groups. I look forward to sharing the progress of my PhD project here.
Bethany's work really does sound fascinating. If you'd like to make sure you can hear all of her blogs and never miss them, make sure you visit our website at dementiaresearcher.nihr.ac.uk, click on the register button on the top of the homepage, and you'll receive a bulletin from us every Friday, which includes links to all the new blogs we publish each week. The next blog comes from me, Adam Smith. I'm the Programme Director for Dementia Researcher at University College London, and in this blog I share a few light-hearted thoughts on the PREA review process, uh, something which has been much discussed uh, on social media recently. A few thoughts on peer review. From the moment you decide to follow a career in academia or start your PhD, the pressure to publish your research findings starts. This is a blog about the peer review process. The focus on publication is often perceived as more valuable than the journey that got you there. If you're really lucky, that publication will result in something, or at least add to the body of research. Bringing this back to basics, what are we talking about? Being funded to discover the answer to a question and then telling everyone what the answer was, even if the answer wasn't the one you were hoping for. As a PhD student, you're expected to independently or semi-independently conduct original and significant research and then produce a publication-worthy thesis or a thesis that leads to multiple publications. While some doctorates include taught components, PhD students are almost always assessed on the quality and originality of the argument presented in their independent research project. As a research funder, you fund people. People to answer questions you think are worth answering. People with clever ideas who have interventions to test and experiments to undertake, to make discoveries. Funders want to be able to assess if their investment is paying off. And there are many ways this is done, rightly so, but publication usually tops the list. Okay. I can hear you saying at this point, get to the point already, we know this and you're depressing me. So, back to the story. There you are. You've worked for years to undercover a small new truth. You write the data into a story, include evidence, citations and conclusions. You get your colleagues or supervisor to look at it and it makes sense. You carefully select the right journal and you submit the paper for publication. The moment you do, you probably get another set of feedback from another reviewer. Sorry, too late. You may discover a typo on the 150th read-through because you always read it one last time after submitting. And you fully expect a rejection. But hope to see your name in print anyway. Then you wait. And wait. Anything from two weeks? to two months, or even longer. Then, finally, you receive a reply. I promise I'm getting to the point now. That reply includes feedback from peer reviewers. The reason for my rambling start to this blog was really to make the point that at this stage you've worked for years to perfect that paper. Thousands of pounds, thousands of hours, stress, elation, pain and sacrifice all went into it. You only hope on that basis that the reviewers who were given the honour of being the first person to review your research 
gave the manuscript the focus it deserved. That the journal also selected people who had time and expertise and a passion for the process. You nervously log into the online system that you've been checking for months already to download the feedback. And what do you find? Could do with more experiments. Add more information or explain. Reviewer 1 and reviewer 3 disagree and contradict each other. And then just an odd comment that says, I disagree with these findings or that you're wrong. As you review this, you'll be saying in your head, I ran out of funding and I've moved on since then. And what? You didn't read it properly. I answered that question. Or what about the word count? How can I possibly do this with the time I have? So what now? And based on what did you possibly make that decision that you disagree? It could be even worse. They simply say, needs work. And at that point, you're going to turn to the wine and turn to Twitter. The standard of peer review is a common complaint among scientists. There are a number of Twitter accounts dedicated to sharing those comments. Just take a look at at your paper sucks and at third reviewer and at acerbic academic or hashtag reviewer too. Peer review is important. Even the people who hate it agree that it has merit. But I think we have a problem. The increasing number of publications and digital journals have driven a culture of publish or perish. And this means that not every paper really gets the review it deserves. Everyone I know that has become a reviewer, including myself, says that being on the other side of this process has given them a new appreciation of the challenge. And I'm not making excuses for them, but when you're given unrealistic deadlines to review, you're doing the work for free and you're asked to review things that don't quite turn out to be what you're expecting, it's hard. Although, there's never any excuse for off-the-cuff comments such as, the authors use an unnecessarily complex method where a simpler one would have sufficed. Or, the arguments in the paper are compelling but not convincing. So what's my point? I think there are lessons for everyone here. Number one, researchers. Make sure your manuscript is awesome. As good as it can possibly be and get some input from people who are not the authors. Two, journals. Get better. Put more focus on finding appropriate reviewers. Give them proper support and guidance and recognition for their work and the time to do a good job. Three, reviewers. Learn to say no. If you really don't have the time or the knowledge, just pass. If you do agree to review, do the best job you can. Remember that the manuscript you're looking at involved a lot of work, so at least be constructive and respectful and follow the guidance. For those of you reading or listening to this, don't be deterred from becoming a reviewer yourself. There's a guide to reviewing from Taylor and Francis that does a good job of this and sets out the reasons why you should. In a nutshell, it benefits your own publication and writing. You get to know the latest developments and ongoing research in your field. It enhances your scholarly research and teaching skills and your connection with the field gets highlighted. All good reasons. But before you do become a reviewer, consider taking a course and become much more of an expert at the process. 
as much of an expert at the process as you are at your own writing and the people who research you're reviewing are on their own work. To make it easier, I found a few links. Have a look at the printed article and you can see those links to courses you can attend. And a final thought, ignore the academic that when questioned about the value of peer review training said, reviewers are sensible, intelligent people, and they can interpret that piece of paper without further training. It's just a waste of time. If you're at home this Christmas, working on editing your manuscript, following those reviewer comments, good luck and uh, keep your head down. Our fifth and final blog for today comes from Dr. Katie Stubbs from Alzheimer's Research UK. She discusses how to get started in public engagement and involvement with research, with a particular focus on biomedical and lab-based researchers. Lab-based research can sometimes feel a million miles away from the people set to benefit from it. But that doesn't mean that people aren't interested in hearing about it, or that researchers can't benefit from engaging the public. While doing my PhD research with fruit flies, I discovered how engaging the public with my research helped me maintain perspective and motivation. And now I work in public engagement, trying to facilitate the same thing for researchers. In this blog, I'm going to discuss some of the different ways of opening up basic research to members of the public, the benefits it can bring to you and your work, and how you can get started. I'm focusing on basic lab-based research and not clinical or social research. And I'm interested to hear from lab-based dementia researchers about their experiences of public engagement and involvement and what they're keen to try for themselves or the opportunities they are looking for. Involvement, participation or engagement? You may hear different words and phrases used when people are talking about ways of engaging with the public. So it's useful to understand whether they actually mean different things in practice. The three you may have heard of are involvement, participation and engagement. Involvement is when people with a condition, like dementia, or their carers input into the research process. Participation is when people take part in a study, which I won't go into more detail on. Engagement is when you share information about your research and discuss your work with people affected by a condition or other members of the public. People can define and interpret what involvement and engagement mean in different ways. And some may argue that involvement in basic research looks more like engagement. Semantics aside, the suggestion for involvement isn't that members of the public carry out the research and run PCRs, Western blots, immunostaining, etc. or decide the details of the experiments you plan to conduct. People with dementia and their loved ones are more than just patients and carers. They are specialists in their condition and their experience. And we need to think of ways to incorporate their knowledge where possible. There are many examples of how people with experience of dementia have been involved in shaping research priorities, and it's something we do here at Alzheimer's Research UK. This is an area of work we're keen to develop further, because we know that understanding what is important for people affected by dementia can ensure that we fund biomedical research that has the greatest impact. Why should I engage or involve the public with my research? Misunderstandings and stigma around dementia persist across society. Public engagement and involvement with dementia research can create opportunities to spark discussion and reduce stigma around the condition. For many people affected by dementia, hearing about efforts to answer fundamental questions about the condition provides a sense of hope and optimism for the future. 
that future generations will benefit from improvements in diagnosis and treatments. Being able to get involved and help shape research is even more rewarding. It's also an opportunity for people affected by dementia to share their experiences, giving researchers insight into how dementia can affect daily life, the variety of symptoms and challenges for which research could provide solutions. Hearing personal stories can help researchers understand the context of their research and see the bigger picture. Through discussion with non-scientists, researchers can improve how they translate scientific concepts into understandable ideas, while also shaping their research direction. And engaging and involving the public can help scientists stay in touch with the reasons why they're doing their research, which can be hugely motivational. Where could I start? If you're interested in involving or engaging the public in your work, you may not be sure where to start. So here are some questions to run through to help your thinking. Who do you want to engage with? Is it the general public, people living with dementia, or their loved ones and carers? If it is the general public, can you be more specific in terms of age, location, ethnicity, etc.? What is your purpose and aim? Do you want to find out more about the experience of dementia? Or start a conversation to better understand the potential impact of your research? Do you think your research is potentially interesting to others and you want to share it? How do you want to work with them? For involvement, is it collaboration or consultation? For engagement, is it dissemination or discussion? Will it be a one-off or an ongoing relationship? Do you need to formalise the arrangement? When? In the research process. Are you looking to shape a research proposal? Or are you about to start a project and want to consult with non-scientists along the way to guide ongoing decision-making? Or are you looking to share your results or work out your next steps and the direction to take your research? Answering these questions can give you a clearer picture of what your next steps could be and who you can turn to. Your university, institution or department may have teams or individuals tasked with helping researchers engage or involve the public in their work. They can help you get a clearer picture of what you want to achieve, explore the possibilities and get you started. Current and potential research funders may also be able to help and advise. So talk to them to find out if they have requirements for public and patient involvement in applications or what support they could offer to ongoing projects. If you're keen to find out more about involvement, check out the Involve guidance and resources from NIHR as there is a wealth of information about what researchers should consider when getting started with involvement activities and relationships. For UK-based researchers, you can join the Alzheimer's Research UK Research Network as each centre receives funding to hold public engagement events and activities each year. The UK has a thriving science festival scene and a number of universities and institutions put on their own festival type events each year. These can be great fun with chances to create tabletop activities or talks to explore your research. Charities and learned societies often put on activities at events like this and have opportunities for researchers to get involved. If you've got your own ideas for ways to engage people with your work, there are a range of funding sources you can apply to and bring your ideas to life. Check out the National Coordinating Centre for Public Engagement, who have tools, resources and information on funding to get you started. I'm always really happy to discuss ideas, offer advice or signpost to training and resources. This blog is by no means exhaustive, so drop me a message if you'd like to chat.
Patient and public involvement research is so important, not only into ensuring studies are designed properly and addressing questions which are important to people, but also to help share what you're doing and to encourage people to fund research as well. Alzheimer's Society, Parkinson's UK and the NIHR Biomedical Research Centre at University College London have recently produced a very specific guide for lab-based researchers discussing how they can do some public and patient involvement. Visit our website and you should find a link in the careers section. I'm afraid that's all we've got time for today. Please join us tomorrow for our fifth and final day of 2020 Blogs Roundups. If you'd like to contribute your own blog to our website, please do drop us a line. Brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society. Supporting early career dementia researchers across the world.